Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. You're about to hear the episode with Phil Rosenthal. But first, a couple things I want to talk to you about. And one of them is Blue Apron. The last thing anyone wants to do after work is wait in line at the grocery store, schlep home and cook a complicated meal and expensive, unhealthy takeout is hardly better. That's where Blue Apron comes in. You guys are probably familiar with Blue Apron. They deliver farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your home, which allows you to create healthy handcrafted meals at home without going to the grocery store and without doing that thing where you're like, I think I need a bunch of this, but I don't know how much, so I'm just going to get more than I need, and then you're going to have leftover ingredients, and you'll have chervil wilting in your refrigerator. You don't want that. Let Blue Apron do all the hard work for you. For less than $10 per meal, they'll send you fresh ingredients, perfectly proportioned. It makes it so easy. Plus, you'll learn to cook with specialty ingredients that are normally hard to find, and you're going to want to save their recipe cards because they're, first of all, on heavy card stock. I might be the only one who likes to talk about the heavy card stock, but I'm just saying these are recipe cards that you will keep because they break down how to make each meal uh, into step-by-step instructions with pictures. It is idiot proof, but it's also like whether you're a really accomplished, good cook or you're a novice, you can make something delicious. It's perfect for date night, cooking with friends. They even offer family plans. And they work around your schedule and dietary preferences. Their experts source only the best seasonal ingredients for incredible meals like chef collaborations, southern chicken cacciatore, uh, seared catfish with salsa rosso fregola, roasted fennel over linguine with lemon ricotta, olives, and breadcrumbs. So just a few of the delicious things. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first two meals free by going to blueapron.com slash Allison. My treat, really, the first two meals are on me when you go to blueapron.com slash Allison. Now imagine... You're in your home, you're waiting for your delivery, and you're looking out the window. But my God, those unsightly window treatments, they're an eyesore. You don't want that. You don't. That's where blinds.com comes in. They're more than just an online store for window blinds. It's a place where you can buy every type of window treatment imaginable. More than you can even imagine. And you get help from a friendly team of U.S.-based decorating experts who will help you every step of the way. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Uh, I wanted something different in the bedroom because we just had just kind of ugly. uh, I don't even know what they're called. They're just called ugly blinds is what they're called. So I talked to Josh over at blinds.com and I sent him pictures of the room. He made some suggestions. They were all good. And we talked about the different suggestions. And now I have beautiful dark blue Roman shades that come This is fancy blind talk. You can bring them down from the top or the bottom so I can have privacy and light in my room. You guys, September is a great month to open the curtain and let some light into your home without worrying it's going to feel like a furnace. That makes it the perfect time to get roller shades from blinds.com. Roller shades are stylish and easy and blinds.com has them with three different levels of openness or privacy. Solar roller shades, light filtering roller shades, and blackout shades. Solar roller shades let you enjoy a view to the outdoors while protecting your furniture and floors from damage. Damaging UV rays. Quit slathering your furniture in sunscreen. Quit slapping those gigantic sunglasses on your couch. You need solar roller shades or light filtering shades, which give you privacy, but still let light into your room or blackout roller shades in great patterns and colors, but they block out all the light. They're great for media rooms, bedrooms, and nurseries. Roller shades are the best way to let some light in this fall. Go to blinds.com now and start saving on roller shades today. You'll see easy in a whole new light with blinds.com. 
All right, you guys, here it is, the episode with Phil Rosenthal. Here we go. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen, do we meet friends again? Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I am sitting here in Dining Room Studios with showbiz legend Phil Rosenthal. Hello and welcome. Hello. I'm so thrilled to be in your in your dinette set. This <laughs> that is makes fantastic. it sound even smaller than it is. Well, it's very nice. It's a, it's it's um my first apartment looked a lot like this actually. I lived in in this neighborhood in Hollywood mm -hmm. and uh you know, we were so happy. This is actually twice the size of uh where we first lived here. Was it more homey though? Because people all the time comment, well, people come in and they say, did you just move in? Because there's boxes and it's not particularly decorated. No, no, that was kind of like us. What we didn't have was the recording studio on the dining room table. <laughs> that means you probably use your dining yes. room table like civilized human beings. Uh oh, I'm starting a thing. This is going to be a fight now? Oh, no, 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 no. I No, my husband and I agree yeah. dining room tables are for recording. <laughs> Couches are for dinner. I get it. I get it. So, well, you're young yet. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so you have a new show coming out on PBS. I do. Called I'll Have What Phil's Having. Yes, and I got cast as Phil. What are the odds? It's perfect. Imagine if you had a different name. I wouldn't have had the show. I know. Uh, as I told you, I emailed, so I watched the show, you sent me an episode yes. and I watched the show yesterday and I emailed you afterwards because I loved it so much. Okay. I'm so excited to watch the whole series now. It was, so it's a, it's a food and travel show and right. you'll tell us more sure. about it, but I figured that I would find it entertaining because I enjoy watching food shows and I enjoy travel shows. Um, but it was just so much more than the sum of its parts. I mean, you're so likable and engaging. It was educational. It was, to be honest, when I saw that it was 56 minutes or something, I was yeah, like, oh, nervous. wow, I got to tuck in. Yeah. <laughs> tuck in for this one. Right. Um, but it's a PBS it, hour. Right. You know, a network hour is 42 minutes. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 long, but it's- Like a little movie. It flew by. Oh, like, that's great. I was Thank so you. engrossed in it, and it was moving, and it was heartwarming, and I just, I just- Loved it. Thank you. I'm super excited. And there's kind of a lull in my watching right now. I have yeah. room for a new show. Here so I this am. Is my, and here I'm you only, are. I only have six. It's not a big commitment you need to have with me. I already wish it's there like were more. It's like a fling. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm just going to hit it and quit it. That's so, it. So uh, tell us how the show came about because I was doing some research and I found an article from 2012 mentioning yeah. oh, this, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh First, Amex was involved, and it turned out they just wanted to do a kind of food and travel thing so that they could have card member experiences. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of led down a garden corporate path <laughs> for that. And, right. But what I was able to do then was take clips from the stuff we filmed there. I got to go to London with Thomas Keller. Wow. That was pretty good. <laughs> and uh, I took a couple of clips out of that, and then my agents wanted to shop that around. And I said, we should go to PBS because I'm somewhat over 40 and I know that's where I'll be welcomed. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm not so old that I could be the kid on PBS. 
<laughs> so you want to be the, the fresh kid. young talent. I'm the fresh young talent compared to, and they, by the way, they gave me their best time slot. I'm not making this up. This is their best time slot. It's after Antiques Roadshow. Wow. They told me that, you know, there's never been a show that did well after our number one show, Antiques Roadshow. I said, well, you know why that is? Because the audience that watches Antiques Roadshow, after they watch that, they die. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> so I, I'm a little nervous, mm-hmm. but I got total freedom. I walked in there. They said, we saw your movie, uh, Exporting Raymond, where I, I went to Russia mm-hmm. and I tried to help the Russians turn Everybody Loves Raymond into Everybody Loves Kostya. <laughs> and uh, they thought that, that oh, uh, we like that. We, you have any other ideas? We like the idea of you going places. Mm-hmm. I said, so does my wife. But <laughs> what do you have in mind? They said, what do you have in mind? I said, well, I would love to do this thing where you know I go to a different city every episode and i show you where to eat and they said yes they i told my brother i'm getting to do this show they asked they actually asked me where do you want to go and i told my brother this on the phone he goes really he goes what are you going to call the show the lucky bastard (laughs) which was the working title for a while uh now it's just the name of the production company on it because you can't say that word on pbs (laughs) no they'll clutch their pearls and then die you got it you got it so that was that. So so six episodes, I go to Barcelona, Paris, Florence and Umbria, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Los Angeles. And I, I wanted to do an American city. They wanted all international cities because mm-hmm. they make more money selling it internationally. But I said, no, no, no. The whole point of the show is, you know, you can travel in your own town too. I know not everybody can afford to travel yet, right? So the show's for people who love to travel and people who haven't had the opportunity yet. Right. But you got to go. I hope you got that from the episode that it inspired you a little bit. I want to go do that. It totally did. It tot- it's Well, you know, I've been – it's funny. Before I watched it, I've started fantasizing about going to Paris. I went a long, long time ago. But yeah. I've started thinking, you know, maybe there's a way to work out a Europe trip. And after watching it, it's like, oh, I have to go. I have to make this happen now. It. It's the best thing we can do with our money. It's the most mind-expanding thing in the world that you can do if you've ever traveled at all. But the point of like the LA episode, which we save for the end, is that even if you have no money, you can travel in your own town. There's a Peruvian restaurant down the street that you're afraid to go to because what do I know about Peruvian? And you go in and you try it and it, maybe your mind expands this much and then you try something else on the menu. That's a metaphor for life. Then maybe you get to know the owner. I like Peruvian people. Maybe now my trip that I'm planning is there. There you go. Uh, in the episode that I saw, which is the Italy episode, which is the second episode, exactly. right? First one uh, is Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah. So in the Italy episode, there's yeah. this really heartwarming story that I don't want to spoil, but um, is yeah, there don't a heart- say the end. I won't. Is there a heartwarming story in each episode? No. Can't be. Because then it would be fake and manufactured. That's true. The, the one you saw was absolutely real. When I go to Tokyo, I can tell you a little about that. I didn't like it. I didn't hmm. get it. Um, have you been there? I've never been. Well, it's like 50 times squares piled on top of each other. I, I, I was like, what is the appeal? I don't <laughs> understand it. That was the first day. And then it slowly reveals itself for you, like everything. Mm-hmm. Again, a metaphor for everything. 
and I learned a huge life lesson being there. First of all, it's the most food-centric place on earth. Every other doorway is a restaurant or somebody selling food. They love it so much. And then you see why. It's phenomenal. And, and I had the most, some of the most exciting meals of my life, right? From, mm -hmm. from just a, a guy who barbecues eel in an alley over hibachi, you know, one foot wide. Oh, wait, is that, I was reading about the different episodes. Yeah. There's an, is there some kind of name for that kind of eel? Like something leech? Yes. Or By the way, loach? I had eel two times. Oh. The second time was that one that you're thinking of, pond loach. Yes, the that doesn't sound little good. eels that swim in the rice paddies. For the listeners who can't see my face, the yes. sound that my face is making is ugh. Yes. I, and I made the little too. <laughs> and I, I have to be honest, not a, you're not going to like every bite of food you have in your life, mm -hmm. but you try, you taste it. Have right? you always been adventurous when it comes no, to eating? No, and I'm not. I don't want to eat the eyeball of the lamb. Right. That's a delicacy in certain places. I don't want to eat. I'm not Anthony Bourdain, for well, instance. That's one of the things I loved about it is I, I'm not, I'm a fan of Anthony Bourdain, the person, but I'm yes. not the biggest fan of his show because I find there's a lot, this is painting me as a really provincial person, <laughs> but there's a lot where I'm like, it's just, I get squeamish, right? Like I I'm it. not, I, I, you know, whereas yes. I was much more at home with your show. Thanks. I get squeamish too. You see that I get squeamish. Mm -hmm. I think in the Italy show, I have to eat something called a Lambrodetto sandwich. Oh, right. That the fourth stomach? Yes. <laughs> The, not the first three stomachs. You wouldn't want to eat those. That's gross. <laughs> the fourth stomach is the delicious one, apparently. By the way, you have it. You know, you close your eyes and say a prayer right. and take a bite. I think mainly because I'm on television, right? <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I'm not, I, yeah, it's okay. I'll go over here and get gelato. <laughs> but I go and do it and it tastes like meat. It just tastes, mm -hmm. it's fine. You said it's it fine. tasted like really good meat it, with really good it. sauce. Yes, that's all it is. So it, there's a scene where you're eating steak mm -hmm. with the best butcher in the, Umbria. Probably the most famous butcher in the world. He was made famous by, by a book by Bill Buford called Heat. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear this book? Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a writer who uh, wants to experience everything firsthand. So he becomes trained as a chef. And the first thing Mario Batali does is tell him, go visit this butcher, Dario Cicchini, the world's most famous butcher in this little town of Panzano in Tuscany. And so that's where this guy became famous. And okay. you see him in our show. And we had like this unprecedented kind of access to him because of Nancy Silverton, who's a friend of mine and a friend of his. And this man shows me how to grill the world's best steak. Right. And so then, you know, he cuts the steak up and you, you eat it that way. And then he just, he's holding this big hunk of steak and just yeah. takes a bite of it. He takes a giant T-bone in his hands and he says, this is how you should really taste it's it. It's how our caveman would have done it. I exactly. think that's what he says. Yeah. And he says two questions. He says that it tastes different when you do it that way. Mm -hmm. And you also took a bite of it I did. just straight off the bone. Yes. Did it taste different? Yes, it always does. Why? Because, because when we cut something up and put it into a bite-sized chunk, it, it's almost, it, you know how everything is content and context? Mm -hmm. So you've taken the context, you've changed it by putting it on your fork and eating like a civilized human being. <laughs> Whereas you take a giant slab of meat it's now on your face, literally. It literally was on your face. It's got to be on. It's got, you're in it now. It's got to taste different. The whole experience. You know, when you sit at a table and there's romantic candlelight and music, it's different than when you're sitting in your kitchen in your underwear eating. 
It's just different, mm -hmm. right? And then you guys throw the hunk of meat up to the people to the who crew. are right. But I'm sure I was going to say, are you aware of this? I'm sure you're aware of this. There's a one woman standing there and she's like, uh, she like shakes her head and makes the like, no, oh no. I love that motion. you said that some woman, that's my, that, that was my little girl. That was, oh, that Lily? was Lily. She's, she's, <laughs> I think uh, last year. So that would have been, she would have been 17 years old. Okay. Yeah, she was so grossed out by the idea of everyone <laughs> Biting on well, the same true. piece of steak. A yeah. lot of sloppy seconds happening yeah. <laughs> on that piece of meat. Yeah, I, I but my son went funny. for it. He was right next to he it. He did. He did. Yeah, but the whole crew that like, first of all, this was Dario's idea to chuck it up to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's a genius. The camera guy, remember, you're making a documentary. We're not staging anything. He followed the sh he followed the meat, like follow the money <laughs> and all the president's men. Here we follow the meat. Yeah. Have you always liked traveling? So there's actually some yes. some pictures in the Italy show of you having gone to Italy, you know, when you were in 30 your years ago. Yeah. When did you start traveling? Uh, in my, in my twenties, I had no money whatsoever. I was a starving actor in New York and a friend of mine was a courier for DHL. DHL now is worldwide famous FedEx size, huge international courier. Then it was kind of starting out. And what they would do is their stuff that they had to ship, rather than booking cargo planes to do it, they would send giant duffel bags of mail and packages as a passenger's excess baggage. Oh, wow. So they would buy you a coach ticket to Zurich, mm -hmm. and you give you all the stubs of their baggage. You see a guy when you get off the plane, he's holding up a DHL sign. You give him those stubs, and you're free to go. You now have two weeks that's yours. To do whatever you want mm -hmm. in Europe, two weeks later, you're going to do the same thing on the way back. They don't pay you anything. You get that ride for free. Right. That's wow. how you get to Europe. And so you could, like, I could do it on the Tuesday morning run to Zurich, and you could do it on the Wednesday morning run to Zurich, and then we have two weeks before we each have to go back. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I did it with couple of friends and then I met a girl and I thought, wow, I can impress this girl with a free trip to Europe. And I married that girl. That worked. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was going to ask how you yeah, met three, your wife. We, we, we were three months into our relationship and I said, uh, I think I want to see if there's no greater test of a relationship than I, traveling. Yes. Because we're not thrown together ever in life more than when we travel. Think about it. I Even know. if you work with your husband, right? Mm-hmm. There's still time in the day when you're on your own and you're going to do things. Right. When you're on vacation, unless you make that time to say, I'm going for a walk over here. <laughs> right? I'm going to, I'll see you at dinner. Mm -hmm. You're, and that was a test. It's also a really good way to see what happens when something unexpected comes your way or you're under a little bit of stress, which just always happens with traveling. Of course. Well, yeah, nothing's perfect. But still, wouldn't you agree that there's nothing better? Yeah. There's still the things you're going to experience. And do you also find this? We call it vacation magic. When you think something's not going to work out and then something incredible happens mm -hmm. that you never saw. You think, you know, it's, it's that thing in life where you put yourself out there. And if your attitude is right, something good's going to come back right. to you. Right? Some sort of serendipity. Yeah. Uh, so in the Italy episode, your whole family was with you. Did yeah. your whole family go on every no. trip? No. no. My son, I made him a, a production assistant for the European part, the three episodes we shot in Europe. Uh, and during that summer, Monica and Lily, they came 
uh, to hang out in Paris and in Italy, and then where it was appropriate in certain moments in the show. It's not, I'm not, you know, making a whole show about my family, but it was appropriate for them to be in a couple of moments Mm -hmm. because we were celebrating kind of family things. Right. 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 So that's your relationship with, we just talked about your relationship with travel, but what's your relationship with food? All right. So I'm crazy that way. And I think it's because, and I've spoken to other people, even great chefs whose parents weren't especially great cooks. Cooks. Okay. Now I love my mother. She's bright, funny, wonderful, terrific, charming, hilarious. Cooking, just not the strong suit. Mm -hmm. My other joke is they, they weren't great parents. You can't blame them though. It wasn't really their field. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they they didn't have a lot of money. And so I would say the theme of our meals was cheap. <laughs> so meat was gray and not so delicious and, and tough to chew. Mm-hmm. It actually I actually thought that steak was one of the worst things you could have because I only had bad steak. Right. It wasn't until I w- went to a steakhouse in New York some executive took me in my early 20s to Gallagher's in Times Square, and I, the top of my head blew off. Right. I couldn't believe it. Right. Because bad steak is not, it's tough and not good and flavorless, and it's a chore. It's like eating your shoe. Yeah. It's really bad. And I wasn't allowed to leave the table until I finished. Oh, wow. So you, or well, now you're associating all these things with it. Right. But if you talk to Alice Waters from Chez Panisse, who revolutionized cooking in America. She'll tell you her mother was a terrible cook. And it wasn't until she went to France and the top of her head came off <laughs> and then she changed cooking in America. Right. You get so into it. You're I say in the credits, I'm like a man coming out of the desert. <laughs> I love it so much. I, I, because I didn't have it. We, and we didn't travel either. I think we went to Cape Cod once mm-hmm. and, and Miami once you in my whole childhood. In the Bronx, right? Yeah. In the Bronx and then Rockland County. Right. And uh, I lived in Manhattan then right after college for – had no money whatsoever. But once a year – this is relevant. When I moved to New York and I felt I was falling in love with the food, just even – I never had garlic before I left mm-hmm. my parents' house. Uh, I'm reading New York Times, these magical places called four-star restaurants. <laughs> That you'd, that you'd open the New York Times, I'd read the restaurant reviews, and once in a, a year, maybe, a four-star review. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. You would look and you'd read about a place like Lutece or Le Bernardin or one of these, and the description of the food and the place and the ambiance and the, the it, uh, how do you get, and I swear to God, I would eat tuna fish for dinner almost every night, pizza almost every night. I had another idiot friend who felt the same way, and we <laughs> saved up and on our birthdays. Oh, wow. $100 meal. This was 1982, mm-hmm. okay? $100 meal was like, would have been a $500 meal today, I think. Right, right. My parents thought I was out of my mind. This was not their values. You know, you save up for when you need an operation. That's why you, <laughs> that's why you need your money. You do not waste your money. It's gone right. the next day. That's something transient, yeah. Right? And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's gone the next day. A memory is not worth the money. Right, right. But- don't you know when you travel or you treat yourself nice once in a while and you share it with somebody else? I would never go do it by myself. That's no fun. It's all about sharing with the person. To go to go and have this be, once a lifetime meal, it's only good if you're sitting across from me and I can say, did you taste this? I tried yours. You tried mine. And we're, we're like, we can't believe our, how lucky we are just to be alive. So that experience extends now to this show mm-hmm. and to traveling. 
That's how I feel. You ever walking in, in, in another country and you're saying, I wish so-and-so was here to see this. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the feeling. That's the feeling. So I have to ask the question that's on everyone's mind. Do you just have a great metabolism? Do you work out? How do you not gain weight? Or do you not eat that much except for the rare occasions? When I started writing in Hollywood, I, I was, I was a skinny kid. Uh, but when I started writing in Hollywood, I, I gained weight. I gained like 30 pounds because when you sit in the writer's room, you know, we'd be at a table but about three times the size of this one and there's 10 of us around. We used to call it the veal pen because <laughs> you're not getting out. And the only sunshine coming in that room is the menu. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's the break in our day. Here's where we get to be human beings. And so, of course, we turn into animals, ordering whatever we want, including many desserts. <laughs> and you're just sitting all day, so you become fat. Right. So I did. I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. When I was 40, doctor said, oh, you seem a little heavy for your age. You seem your cholesterol is very unusual high for your age. So like a nervous Jew, I flipped out and I did all <laughs> this research to find out what I have to do to get down to you know health, healthy time. And so I did. And then... I thought if I'm if I want to eat this way, two things. I have to work out a lot. I have to so I work out every day, do something mm -hmm. every day, some activity. And two, I can't eat like that every day. Yeah. I, I fooled myself thinking, okay, just special occasion. Well, in show business, every day is a special occasion. <laughs> somebody's having a birthday, somebody's a, you know, somebody won something, somebody's celebrating something, you get fat, you're an idiot. So I I had to curb that. And so that's what I do. If I if I have one of these meals, I'm going to eat very very light leading up to it, and a and the next day. Mm. That's all. So how did you meet your wife? Uh, she went to the same college as me, but we didn't. She transferred in the year after I graduated, and she. Uh, I met her. I uh, I saw her in a play that was done by people who were undergrads when I was in college. Now I'm living in the city. I go to see them, and there's this funny girl. And I don't, I don't have ulterior motives. I just think that girl's got it. She's funny. She's great. Love her. Tell that girl she's funny, I said. And I went home. A few weeks later, I'm walking down. Do you know the Ninth Avenue Food Fair in New York? I it's don't It's this fabulous know. food fair where all the merchants on the street come out in front of their stores. Mm -hmm. And they are grilling lamb on spits. And they're, oh, you know, fun. it's a very ethnically diverse stretch of ninth avenue from 37th to 57th street and it's fantastic i'm walking to my buddy and i'm eating a rib and i'm dripping it on my t-shirt <laughs> i think it was joe jackson's jump and jive t-shirt <laughs> and here comes the, oh the girl i like from the show and she's with a mutual friend of ours too and I, I say hi i'm a big fan of yours and she says i'm a big fan of yours too and i think oh she's seen me in other things that it turns out that was a total lie. <laughs> Our whole marriage is built on this lie, this one lie. <laughs> yeah, because she she just, I don't know what she wanted, but we, then then there, a part came up. We were doing a play at Columbia Grad School, and a part came up for, for that was perfect for her, and we called her, and she did it. And I don't know if you've been in a play, but you start rehearsing, and you get to know each other, and before I knew it, she took advantage of it. <laughs> that's how, that's the legend of Monica. Oh. Yeah. So you wanted to be uh, an actor. That was your first aspiration, Well, I right? think when you're a kid, you don't know that there's writing, directing, producing. I watched The Honeymooners, mm -hmm. and I saw Art Carney, and I always said, I want to be him. 
I just wanted to be funny. I didn't care how. I just wanted to do it. I, and I can't say I'm a great actor. I just wanted to be funny somehow. Right. And so that's what I went to school for. How how do you go to school for being funny? Well, you got to take you got to go into theater. That's it, right? And at what point did you make the switch from uh, wanting to be in front of the camera to yeah. doing behind the camera stuff? It was kind of made for me because uh, some friends of mine wrote a show for ourselves to be in, and then that was successful. And then another friend of mine at the same time just happened to uh, want to write a screenplay with me. He was a writer. And we wrote a screenplay, and that sold. And what it was sold that? to it was nothing that got made, but oh. it sold to. Imagine this, nineteen eighty-eight. We sell a screenplay, and I'm, tell, I'm telling you, God's honest truth. I had two hundred dollars in the bank. Seriously, we sold this script in nineteen eighty-eight to HBO for seventy thousand dollars. Wow, that was like. Yeah, I'm a I'm a thousand air. <laughs> I went from a hundred air to a thousand air. <laughs> And so 35 of that was mine. Yeah. And so I like I went from eating tuna fish for dinner to eating whatever I want. <laughs> so I stayed writer for a while. What's that guy doing now? That guy uh, had a very successful career and then he died. Oh. He was a oh, very was that- good friend of mine, Alan, Alan. He was very instrumental in influencing me and helping me when I first started. So I owe him everything. Uh, wonderful, great guy. I feel terrible that I put it that way. I should have. What's he doing now? Yeah, I, I should. I sh- <laughs> well, what are the chances? I mean, I should. I should what have. Do sort you of feel terrible now? Don't. I feel a little bad. I'm okay. Okay. Um, so I just started reading your book. So full disclosure, yeah. this was kind of a last minute booking, so oh. I did not have time. Who didn't show up? Miley Cyrus? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> The You'd- people are going to be very disappointed if they expected her. <laughs> no, because all my clothes stay on. No, what? <laughs> Go ahead. That's not how this was presented to me. No, <laughs> um, no. What what I mean is the time in between when we talked about having you on the show and you being on the show ah. was very short. Yes. Uh, so I did not have time to read your whole. In fact, Don't I wasn't the, even aware. Look, you saw there an was. episode of the show. I know, but then, it's fine. but then when I realized there's a book to be read, I was like, God damn it! Allison Rosen would have read this book, oh. but whoever you're sitting with. Yeah. Only read the beginning, but I'm yeah. so into it that I'm like, and I and I'm doing podcasts tomorrow and the next day, and they both have books too, and so I'm going to be up doing a lot of reading. But I want to continue reading yours because it's super, uh, it's like totally grabbed me. Thank you. I love it. But I have some questions that yes. relate to the beginning of the book. Please. So you said something which I love, which is that too much sensitivity is only bad for the person feeling it. Yeah. But it makes for a great artist. You know, so I, I, I really believe that sometimes the same thing that makes you good is the same thing that makes you crazy. Yes. Now, uh, in, in, in my experience, uh, working with all kinds of people, crazy wins. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's very rare that the good part of the creativity is the part that shines through and you tolerate anything from that person, mm-hmm. right? We usually have a limit to where how we can... I was going to call my book, by the way, Everyone's Nice in the Meeting, because <laughs> that's Hollywood. Right. It's not until you get in bed with them that you realize, oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, and by the way, people could feel that about me too. I doubt they do, though. I was... I was uh, that line about sensitivity, 
I felt was my craziness. Like I was a sensitive kid, like things bothered me, things like I, and I was, but I was also, that sensitivity was also the ability to be attuned to everything, notice everything mm -hmm. and then absorb it and then give it back to you in, you know, whatever crazy way I had of doing that. Right. right? So that's what makes us, each of us have something to offer. And I tell kids all the time when I go speak at school, I tell them two things. One is always quit. <laughs> uh, and I mean it because if it's not right, yeah, do the show you want to do because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. Right. So I, that, that was told to me by Ed Weinberger, the great showrunner. And that's the best piece of advice I ever got in my whole life. And the other thing, uh, I now forgot what I say. What was I saying? Something, it was about sensitivity. Sensitivity. Oh, it, it, what makes you different from you and you different from her and me different from you is we, each of us see the world through our own eyes and through our heads. That's different. So that's what you want to bring to the table. Don't try to imitate somebody else. We all do imitate someone else when we're first starting to write, for instance, because mm -hmm. we've been influenced and we don't know who we are yet. But if you do it long enough, you know that Ray Charles started singing when he first started singing. If you go back to the earliest recordings of Ray Charles, you could not tell the difference between him and Nat King Cole. Mm -hmm. He was trying to sound like him. And then he became the most distinctive voice in the world. Right. right? Or even Picasso. Exactly. He painted like the guy next to him because what does he know? Right. So, but the thing that makes him Picasso is his very unique head. So everyone has that. Are your kids sensitive? Yes, very. Very. Where you mentioned that sensitivity is is what allows you to notice everything and take it in. Um, where do you think that comes from? Because to me, that's like a very because I think that I'm I'm the same way in that I'm very attuned to you know the feelings in the room and yeah. from from the time I was a young kid, I was yes. always like that. I think it's a sort of a very particular sensibility that usually has some kind of root in what's going on in the family, probably. Exactly. You start to, it's almost like a self-preservation thing. Uh-oh, yes. let's say dad was mad. I can't say my dad was like that, but you know, dad was mad. We better read the room right. and adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, let me put it another way. It's good if you're an artist to have lots of feelings, <laughs> right? Right. But you can't turn those feelings off. You yeah. can't suddenly, when it's your feelings about you, they don't go away. The feelings are just as strong, if not stronger, because mm -hmm. it's you. So this sensitivity about capturing uh, how a woman might feel on the dock as her lover, you know, is sent away on a boat forever. I understand what that might feel like. But then I could have those same kind of depth of feelings about uh, my sandwich isn't right. <laughs> That's too sensitive. Yeah. Um, but w what, was there a lot of, um, yelling or instability in the house? Yeah. We had everything from hilarity to, to, you know, knock down, drag out kind of screaming things. And it comes from, uh, you know, an unstable, uh, background. I think that, that my mother had to, through no fault of her own, she was in Germany in the forties and, uh, she was in a camp and, you know, my dad, was able to get out uh, when he was a kid uh, right after Kristallnacht, which was the night that yeah. they decided, let's go through town and smash up all the windows of Jewish businesses and 
drag him in the street and beat him up. And that'll be the signal that things are about to go bad. <laughs> and uh, he got out. My mom didn't. She survived. And this mentality of, you know, losing your dad and losing a lot of other family, this uh, can screw you up a little. Just a little. Right. It's amazing that she survived. How? Yes. How did she? Uh, people survived. There are survivors. It's so weird to think that if I had been born just 15 years earlier, I would have been there. Yeah. That seems crazy to me. But there's lots of support groups for people, ch children of survivors, because they got the kind of residual uh, angst and craziness and, and on them having done nothing. Right having not been there and feeling the guilt of an experience that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I'm 10 years old. I want a bike for my birthday. I want a 10 speed bike like the other kids on the street all have. And my mother said, you know what I got for my birthday when I was your age? <laughs> That's the... Right. And a kid doesn't care what his mom got for her. He just wants the bike. Mm -hmm. You don't care about other... You're not able to care. So that not caring translates into guilt at a certain point right. because you go, oh, I was terrible not to feel that for my mom. It's, it's too much for it's a kid. It's too much. It's too yeah. much. And if you go to any kind of religious school, they a lot of them at that time anyway, we're talking about the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, they were not sensitive. To, they just were like, you need to know this happened. That's all. Mm -hmm. And it's bad, bad, bad. And watch out. And this is bad. And look out. And you go, I don't want to be at this school. I don't want to go to this Hebrew school. As it seems terrible. Right. So that follows you around too. There's right. A, but listen, you can get this story from anybody that the strict religious training is something to be rebelled against. Mm -hmm. So the religion may, you know, we're seeing a downslide. Yeah. Yeah. How old was your mom when she got out of the camp? Uh, 11. God damn. Yeah. Um, and she actually, she survived that. But she almost died on the boat on the way over. And then the boat was not accepted in the United States. They had to go live in Cuba for two years, which she says, since she survived that terrible, she really almost died on that boat. She says that was the best time of her life. Oh, really? Tropical paradise. <laughs> it's like the Godfather before Castro comes uh -huh. in. Woo-woo. Yeah, everybody's uh, having a party. Yeah. She still fondly loves a mango. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you had been in therapy since you were eight. No, no, no. I haven't been in therapy since Or no, I was you started. Eight. They put you in therapy they at eight? They thought something was wrong with me. Why? Uh, because I didn't toe the line. I didn't. I got, I got into, I got into either fights or I didn't like school or which I think, you know, all contributed to who I am now. Mm -hmm. But when I was eight years old, I figured out very quickly how to manipulate the situation in therapy. I resented that they thought something was wrong with me. And so I Who's lied. Who's the they? Your parents are school. My mother. Mm -hmm. And I quickly figured out how to turn the whole therapy session into the therapist thinking it's the mother. <laughs> how? Make up shit. I had no, there were no stakes for me. Right. I didn't care. My objective was to get out of this hour mm -hmm. without 
being blamed for anything. So what does a kid do? You blame the other, blame the, and by the way, they ask leading questions because actually they want to find out it's the mother. Yeah. Well, the, so funny, I'm more than happy to help them. Right. I didn't realize when you said that they all decided it was the mother, I yeah. didn't realize that you had made up a bunch of stories though. I I can't say it's completely made up. I feel like they're oriented can, towards that anyway. You can twist it. Yeah. Once you see, like, again, reading the room. Right. Once you see that they're almost fishing for it, give them the fish. <laughs> right? And what's been your relationship with therapy since then? Since your eight-year-old experience? A little bit in high school, just because I felt had this feeling that I didn't belong and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing well with girls and I felt I didn't like myself and I, you know, what everybody goes through. A little bit there. I thought it was baloney. And then a little bit in my adulthood, I needed it. I needed, there was pressure and I needed to release it in a healthy way and not, certainly not at my wife and certainly not. And I saw it could go that way if you let it. And so I got help. But for me, after a while, it worked. I felt better and I didn't need to keep going. I felt like I went to the doctor, the doctor fixed what was wrong. And then I found myself, you ever do this in therapy? You're in therapy? I uh, have been okay. a lot. Yeah. But to this, tell me, for those of you listening, those of you who are in therapy, if you find you're doing this, maybe it's time to stop. <laughs> you have nothing to say that day. Yes. And so you go in and you talk to the therapist as if he's a friend of yours. Yeah. And you tell him what's going on <laughs> and whatnot. And, and, and beyond that, you have to think of what am I going to talk about today? Mm -hmm. So you think of stuff to say. What the hell are you doing? You're paying a guy to make up stories and to right. and, and to... to bring significance to, you know, there was traffic today, right? <laughs> and then at the end, don't you know, he would say, what would your mother have said about this? <laughs> so he's bringing up shit that I'm fine with now. <laughs> and then I would say, well, she would probably give me a hard time. And how does that make you feel? Well, I don't like, oh, that's something to talk about next time. Yeah. <laughs> They're in business. That's their job. I know. I, I don't can't like say it's all it a way, but yeah. it's, it's not all a ripoff. I'm not saying that. But if you find yourself in a position where you got what you got out of it, it's mm -hmm. time to go. There are lifers in yeah. this business, right? You know, with one with my favorite therapist, who was a therapist that I had in New York, um, and I, I lament that I'm I do phone sessions occasionally with her, but it's just not the same. I liked being able to go in and be in person and stuff. But sometimes I would think I don't know what to talk about, and then I would go in and I'd walk out and be like, "Wow, I wasn't." Like that was a really good session, even though I didn't know what I wanted to talk about at the beginning. Yes. But then with another therapist where I did sort of feel like, okay, I've reached the end of this. Yes. Then I did have that thing you're talking about yeah. of like, I got to come up with something. Maybe, what can I come you know, up listen, with? maybe that first guy's better. Yeah. Right? It's like any doctor. Right. Or just with just more oriented towards what I needed, I think. Listen, I'm putting a, almost malicious spin on it. That's how I was feeling about this one guy. Right. I'm not here to say it's not valid and it's not good and that you can't walk in thinking you got nothing and come out with a revelation. Mm -hmm. That can totally happen. But if it's years. Right. <laughs> maybe, Time to maybe you can go, take your money and go on a vacation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you said that um, people's – wait. Was it that you said that people's goodness is also their craziness? Or no, like I'm saying sometimes the same thing that makes you like this great artist okay. is the same thing that makes you also crazy. Right. Okay. So you're, and for you, it's your sensitivity. I think that's it. And when it comes out as craziness, what is that like? It's, uh, uh, 
it's only it I try to just make it hurt myself. I don't want to pass it on to my kids. I don't want to you know, right. abuse my wife in any way. I don't want to uh, burden anyone. Burden anyone like. else. Uh, my friend Raymond. He was wonderful to work with, and he was—he's as crazy as a loon, and he'll tell you that. <laughs> he's, but his kind of neurosis is the good kind mm-hmm. because it only hurts himself. He doesn't right. hurt you with it. We all work with people in show business where their neurosis hurts you. Yes, right. Not so I mean. we don't like. That's difficult. Right. That's what I mean by the. Okay. Sometimes the same thing that's good makes you crazy. And when it hurts you, is yeah. it because you are? Are you ruminating, or are you? Just are you hurt? Are you angry? Are you a little anxious? A little hurt? A little feeling? Yeah, there can be anger. It's it takes whatever negative emotion you have, it's there, mm-hmm. right? Okay, I think, and you think about it, and you try to uh, uh, think about something else. Turn on the TV, have a glass of wine, whatever it takes, and and uh, listen, food and travel, and a sense of humor. These getting family. I'll tell you what the show's about: food, family, a sense of humor, travel, friends. These are the things I boiled it all down in my years on Earth. <laughs> These are the important things. It's such a simple, pure idea. I love it. I'm in the process of um, pitching a show with a friend. That's kind of I believe in it, but it's. I never know if I use the term high concept correctly. Never do a high concept show. Well, that's what I was going to say is I'm not sure it is, but it might be a little bit high concept. And when I was watching yours, I was like, fuck, this is, excuse my language. So (laughs) it's just so straightforward. It's so like pure and good. Thank you. Um, High concept is the thing they're looking for and the thing that may get you on the air. It's also the thing that will kill your show in three weeks. That's what I was thinking. Or sooner. I should be saying this given the potential... Uh, synchronicity of this being out there with me, like having meetings or something. But yeah, I feel like for me, I need that high concept for them to be like, yes, we're going to put you on the air. But like ultimately what I really want should not be someday. What I really want to be doing is just a show where I'm interviewing people. You got it. But it's like, that's not dazzling enough. enough for them to be, to say yes. What makes that show different from, other shows is that it's you doing it that's what i think yes (laughs) so then what is it a matter of me explaining why the me is different than other people yes okay your point of view right that's what makes it different that makes sense the best thing you can show them are the numbers of people who are listening right and how it's gone up from here to here Mm -hmm. right which you have yes so that's what that's all they care about um Wanted to ask you a, a sitcom question. This is already the most in-depth interview I've ever done. Thank you very much. True. I'm not here just plugging my thing. You're asking me about my childhood and my therapy and my mother. <laughs> I have to lie down. <laughs> this is a big deal. Oh, my God. Maybe that's my gimmick. People lie down. Not that's really. It'd be yeah. so low energy, you know? <laughs> um, so I was reading uh, in in your book, and you're talking about the – the real moments in the sitcoms that you loved, that there was there was drama and there was comedy. And like yeah. someone who's funny is not funny all the time. And yeah. it underlined why I don't love a lot of sitcoms today. Mm-hmm. And I used, I mean, I've talked 
ad nauseum about the fact that Facts of Life was one of my favorite shows. Yeah, and Facts of Life really had ups and downs. And people yes. think, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just, it was hardly shtick. It was, you really, the characters went through a lot and I'll watch that show and I know I sound ridiculous, but I will cry over Blair's relationship with her mother from the early years and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it was affecting. It also, it also hit you at the right time in your life. I think if you came upon Facts 30s. of Life, yeah, <laughs> if you came upon Facts of Life right now, yeah, probably, or not. maybe when you were younger, right, than you were when it hit you, yes, we all have that relationship with the shows we love, right? Context. I don't a lot of sitcoms now. I don't love them because it is all so wacky and zany. But mm -hmm. there's nothing to. There's always been there's... wacky and zany. Here's another great life lesson. Okay. Most things are terrible, <laughs> and, and they always have been. Yeah. You know, the TV shows in the 60s, they weren't better right. than now. The, the ones in the 70s, most of them were ridiculous. So we're just cherry picking? Of course we're cherry picking. Okay. I could cherry pick right now and show you some of the best dramas in the history of the world have been on in recent years. Breaking Bad, what's a better show than that? Oh, yeah. I'm right? talking about sitcoms, sitcoms. now, though. Right. Uh, Do you feel everything's like there's cyclical. been a change? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe, honestly, Raymond would never get on the air today. Why? Uh, it's too mild in okay. appearance. Right. Now, we know if we watch the show that it's about the real stuff, mm -hmm. that it's about some of the stuff we're talking about, about therapy and mothers and the, right. the psychological stuff yeah. going on. And yes, we wanted to keep it real. We had one rule in the writer's room. Could this happen? Mm -hmm. Not would it definitely happen that way in real life every time. That's boring. Today, Ray does his taxes. That's boring. <laughs> but could the zany thing that is about to happen our job is to justify it in the real world. Otherwise, it is just silly shit mm -hmm. and you don't believe it. And once you play that rule, you're only as good as your last zany crappy thing that you did. Right. You have to keep topping it. Otherwise, the audience goes, nope, right, not wow. funny. So what does work and what does sell is the low concept. Ray and his family live across the street from his parents. This is such a groundbreaking thing. <laughs> People were not jumping up and down. Oh, my God, what a sexy idea. We have to have that show. But don't you know, and I, I only learned this through trial and error, that that low concept is a concept that can be fed every week because the possibilities of stories are actually limitless. Mm -hmm. As opposed to live across the street from his parents who are from Mars. Now you have to service the fact that they're from Mars every week. So every week's the same. Right. You run out of steam quickly. Right. So that's the that's the thing now. Modern family is as close as it gets to what Raymond was, but their the brilliance of what they were able to do was make it modern. Mm -hmm. But that also means being edgier sexually and and you know with uh, with uh, a certain amount of diversity that we didn't have because it was a a, a simpler time and a simpler family really. Mm -hmm. And it was based on a real guy's family. He didn't have uh, Charo coming in. <laughs> he didn't have, you know, uh, gay brothers or whatever that they have. Is there anything you wish you'd done differently with Raymond? Not one thing. How could I? It's, it was a dream. It was the most wonderful experience of my life to be able to be so lucky. Look, you write alone in your room. And then to... And you hope one person at CBS will like it enough to let you film the pilot. That was my dream. Mm -hmm. Now it's being done in multiple countries around the world. Our version of it is done 
in 140 countries. Wow. Crazy. And it's still on every day somewhere like I Love Lucy. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to say? I wish I changed this. By the way, eight, eight season in, I get a call from someone at the network. We've done some research. They don't really like that the uh, wife is always picking on right. Really? Eight seasons in? They don't <laughs> like that the wife is? Should we change it now? <laughs> yeah. Did that turn into a battle? No. It's, that, what I just told you was the whole conversation. I think they realized that they shouldn't have made that call. Right. When <laughs> did you learn, um, if it was a learning process as opposed to something you always knew, to trust your gut or to trust your your take on things? I don't know. But I do know, and this is actually documented pretty well in the book, that I, I didn't know how to do it otherwise. It wasn't because I'm a genius. It was because I truly didn't know how it would work if I did what they said. Mm -hmm. In other words, let's say you were going to do a show about your family. And this guy comes in and says, no, your mother should say this. Well, she wouldn't say that. Right. And then if she says, if she says what you're saying, that one doesn't work. You, no one can tell you about your experience better than you. And so I was writing very, very personally. Yes, it was built on the surface of Ray's family life. He really had twin boys and older daughter, brother who was jealous, parents who lived close by. But what I didn't know about those people, I filled in with the personalities from me. And once I did that, it was mine. Mm -hmm. I owned it and I was going to be true to it. And they wanted me to change a lot of things, but I didn't do it because I didn't know how to do it that way. Mm -hmm. And so I knew it wouldn't work. And so I quit the show twice before it got on the air. Always quit. <laughs> what were the circumstances when you quit twice? One, they wanted me to cast somebody who was not right as the wife. They wanted like a blonde kind of shiksa looking uh, girl. It would have turned into like, you're not old enough to know the show probably, Bridget Loves Bernie, about a, a Gentile girl who marries into a Jewish family. So mm -hmm. the whole show now, high concept, is about that. Right. So if you cast, imagine that show. Imagine Raymond with the blonde girl hmm. in that. It changes It's a totally it. different show. Plus, they, they even had a specific actress in mind, and she was not right. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, I was going to quit. Was that a big debate? Yes. If it, okay. No, I mean, within yourself. Because if it were me, I'd be like, oh, I'm so close to getting this thing I want. No. No, it was a deal breaker. Into the moment I heard it, I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. It was I, as crazy as saying, you know, I need you to go out and all the characters are going to throw up on stage at the same time every <laughs> week. No, I'm not doing that show. Yeah. How old were you at the time? 35. Mm -hmm. And then what was the other time that you almost quit? Uh, the show got picked up to go to series, and they said, uh, "Congratulations!" My agent called. You're you're gonna your show's going, and they just want to know who's gonna run the show. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, well, I assumed me, you. You never ran a show before." I said, "Well, we'll the show's good enough to get picked up, right? Yes, I'll do more like that." And they, they were like, "You don't understand. This is now lots of people being employed. This is a you know a production, millions of dollars now." Uh, I said, well, then I quit. <laughs> I did. I'm not going to work for somebody else on my own show. I'm writing about, my, again, my family. Right. I know this world better than another guy. And I also had done enough shows on other people's shows to understand that the person in charge gets to make the show the way they want it. Mm -hmm. The showrunner gets to make it the way they want it. And they were going to change my family. No. They're so like, we're he, gonna get this blonde lady in there exactly, if it kills us. Exactly. <laughs> so they say, okay, my agent says, Don't get excited, I'll, I'll go, I'll see what they're 
and he calls me back. He says, good news. Uh, they're going to let you co-run the show with someone else who's had experience running it. You can co-run it with them. <laughs> and I said, oh, if you put it that way, I quit because I know what will happen. Yeah. Because he has experience. He's still the top guy. Right. He's still going to get to run the show. So I quit. Tell him I quit. Goodbye. And they said, you're an idiot. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Agent who supposedly works for me. Right. Hang up. Monica says, why are you sad? I, I quit my show today. And three days went by where I lived in a world where my show is going without me. Three days. That's a long time. Yeah. Three minutes is a long time. Three days. Suddenly the phone rings. Uh, Les Moonves is going to let you uh, run the show. What? Why? Uh, he liked how you handled the thing with the actress. The first conflict. Right. What it was actually this time, showed them. Time in between those? A couple months. Uh-huh. Right? So the conflict and the standing up for yourself turns out to be the thing they're looking for. <laughs> right? That's great. And crazy making kind yes. of. Yes. Um, the craziness of show business, does it still surprise you and get to you sometimes? Or is it like at this point you just expect it to be like this? You expect crazy, but you're always pleasantly surprised by how <laughs> crazy it can be. It really is. Every day there's some thing that you think is just common sense. Mm-hmm. But I go through the world that way. I, you know, in your own house, you think, this is, what do you mean? How can you think this? <laughs> this is, isn't this rational thought that I'm saying this and you're, isn't my way the exact right way? So that somebody else could say, maybe that's your problem. Is right. that you think your way is right always. Do you think your way is right always? Most of the time. <laughs> Although if I'm shown clearly that it's not, I am the first guy to back down. I'm the first one to say, sorry, you're 100% right. Yes, let's go bigger. Mainly for expediency's sake. Mm-hmm. It, because when you're in the writer's room, everybody has the idea they think is right. And we fight, and we fight, and we fight until finally you just, somebody has to be, because we want to go home, right. say, yes, let's go with that. That's the right idea. It's not, the, it's not my idea. It's not his. It's the best idea. So you want to live in a world where the best idea wins in every part of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to let your, your ego yes. sit to the side. Yes, that's a, that's a learning thing. That's a, you know, we don't come with that. No. <laughs> uh, let's take some questions that people sent in over Twitter, and we have a little song. There's a Twitter song? Mm-hmm. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Wow. Okay. These are your fans, not necessarily my fans. Right. Well, who knows? They could be either of our fans. Okay. Um, B. Slammon says, what's your best behind-the-scenes moment directing Bill Clinton's White House Correspondence Dinner video? Wow. So I got to, you know, I wrote jokes for President Clinton for all eight years of his presidency. There's like a humor season in Washington. It's April. Mm-hmm. Gridiron Dinner, Radio and TV writer's dinner and then the big one that you see on tv the one that colbert did in front of george bush that was the, the white house press, press correspondence, correspondence dinner, dinner. so i'm writing jokes for that for bill clinton who was the best in the world at delivery how did you get hooked up with bill clinton i had a guy who i went to high school with mark katz who was already there mm-hmm. writing he was like the the white house humor person and so when these big events come, they need help. So I was one of the guys that, so I had had this idea, let's do a video 
uh, and they said, uh, he doesn't have time to make a video. He's the president until his last year. And we got to write a video for the president. It's like a, a Saturday Night Live type of five minute. You can see it online. It's called uh, The Final Days. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, The Final Days. You could see it. I co-wrote it with the guys in the White House. And I got to go to Washington for a week and direct the president of the United States in a comedy video. This had never been done before. Obama does now 10 a year. <laughs> you see them on. He'll do Between Two Ferns. This right. was unheard of right. uh, then. I feel like Zach Galifianakis is stealing your thunder. No, it's fine. It's great. It's it's a this is a great way for the president of the United States to connect with the people mm-hmm. because everyone's why. Listen, what would you rather watch? State of the Union address or Between Two Ferns? Between Two Ferns. Yes, so that you're like everybody else. So this is a great as we as we learn, humor is a great way to get the message out. Uh, was there a moment? The whole thing was. was I, I taught the president of the United States how to play the game Battleship. <laughs> He didn't put, know. We put, had a scene in the war room, right, which I need special access to go in. Right. The joint uh, general of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is playing battleship with the president, okay? <laughs> and I teach the president the game. It's a, he's very smart, so it doesn't take very long. And the general says, General Shelton says, uh, I have uh, the electronic version at home. <laughs> and I said, sir, you have the real version. <laughs> You actually take battleships and put them in the ocean. You can hide them. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, you want more from that? I have plenty. Read the book. It's all in there. Okay. Wayne says, he yeah. seems so nice. What's the worst thing he's ever done? I'd say this podcast. <laughs> this is It's been a good life. No, what's the worst thing I ever did? I was mean to my little brother. I was mean to him when I was a kid. He, because, you know, I don't know if you, are you an older sister? Yes, I related so much to what you're saying about yes. this. Because the fact that your your name for your brother was Richard the Cute. Yes. <laughs> my sister was the cutest thing in the whole yes. world right around the time that I was becoming incredibly awkward looking. He's still Richard the Cute. He's still, you know... Everybody Loves Raymond's written from that title is from the jealous brother's point of view. Mm. I'm that guy. That's where that title. My my wife saw that in the script as something that Ray's real brother actually said about him and said, that's your title. That's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yes. But I would, shrimpy little kid, I would get picked on at school. The only person that I could pick on was the kid who was about five years younger than me at home. It still breaks my heart that I was mean to him. Mm-hmm. And so now, maybe out of guilt, he's my best friend. <laughs> yeah. He's also a producer on the show and we get to travel and eat together, oh, that's which great. is what we love to do now, anyway. Is he, does he, is he upset with you over how you treated him when you were kids? No, he's ni- He's way nicer than, unless he's going to get me. <laughs> and I don't know. So that's the worst thing you've ever done. I you can honestly say that. You were mean to your brother when you were a little kid. And it's good to get that out of the way. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, okay. Oh, Robert Paulson says, what is your favorite pizza to make and to eat? I don't make anything. You know, there was a lot of questions from people. Okay, that's so weird. There were a lot of questions from people asking about you making pizza. And I thought I was unaware of this pizza making thing, but everyone must know something that I don't know. Well, you've been over. Right. And you have the pizza oven there. Yes. You see the guy making it. Yeah. I'm not making anything. I didn't think you did, yeah. but I wonder why. I'm not everyone... a good cook. I inherited that from my mother, but I'm a great 
audience for cooks. Why must everyone be under the impression that you make pizza? Maybe because people know about pizza at Phil Rosenthal's. That could be. For the movie night, and they just yeah. assume that you're making If they want to know my favorite, I, yeah. I, I didn't think this would be the one, but it's a mozza pizza, and it's the one with the white anchovies. For some reason, I have a piece of that, and I've had a piece of that, Every week for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I always gravitate. I eat the other ones. I love them. But for some reason, that one, maybe it's a little healthier or something that feel, but it is delicious. I recommend it. All right. White pizza, white anchovies. White anchovies. On, on, there's no cheese on that pizza. It's tomato sauce with some spicy red peppers and the white anchovies. This is like, you feel like you're being transported to another place. I have a question. Uh, Oh, and we even have a little drop for, for what this question may be. Are there any flavors that you just don't like at all? Yep. Black licorice. Right? Okay. Bitter. the fla uh, Something bitter. Although Cilantro? Uh, fresh. Yeah, I like it. Okay. Uh, my son has that where it tastes like soap to him mm -hmm. thing. Um, a lot of people have that. But like a, uh, I love beer. But if it's bitter, like the IPAs, not interested. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what what would you say is your favorite flavor? Chocolate. That didn't take long, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. All right. Snack chat. Snack chat. Um, <laughs> Wallace Greenslade says, was there ever thought of a Robert spinoff for Raymond? There was. It, we wrote it as we were finishing Raymond. We had this idea. Because we had, as Amy's family, this is my wife, by the way, uh, Georgia Engel, phenomenal actress from Mary Tyler Moore, Fred Willard, we all know who he is, mm -hmm. and her brother was Chris Elliott. So I had a built-in cast. They were on the show like 30 times. They were all ready. But I'll tell you the truth, CBS, they said, we'll let you do a pilot. I said, what do you mean a pilot? <laughs> I want the writers to stay together. They all are getting deals because they were on Everybody Loves Raymond. They they. They're not going to, they can't chuck that money for a pilot. So, well, give us a commitment so we can stay together and make the show. Nope. Nope. Like, and we'll I think it's because. Who's going to run it? Exactly. I think it's because everyone in our cast was over 40. Mm. And the show they did give a 12 episode commitment to, everyone was under 30. What show was that? I don't remember the name, but it was about like a third grade class reunion thing, I think. But, you know, I don't know. Ageism. Yes, ageism, I think. I mean, listen, they could have a, a million reasons why not, but it's no, certainly it, seemed that way to me. It does seem that way. Ed Milton says, what a great booking. <laughs> oh. Who introduced him to the world of Roy Choi? Oh, who introduced me to the world of Roy Choi? I, you know, I invest in restaurants, many restaurants, because I'm not very bright. <laughs> this is a great way to lose money. I was going to say. Yeah. I my understanding is it's very hard to make money. It is. In we always say it's like investing in a Broadway show or a boat. <laughs> this is not going to go well, right? Most of the time, but because I don't care about the money, I've always done well mm -hmm. because I bet on the chef. Just like if I was the studio and I saw a good writer and I wanted him to be the showrunner, I would bet on him and then I would leave him alone. You get no notes from me right. unless you ask me my opinion. Uh. I'm just, I already believe in you. Go do what you do. I don't know how you do what you do. Please go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to Roy Choi by having uh, something that changed the world, which was the Korean taco that he invented. And that literally changed the world, this guy. Hmm. 
And I just wanted to meet him. So I would seek him out. I would go to his places and get to know him a little bit. And now I'm investing in this wonderful thing called local, which is bringing healthy, fast food into poor neighborhoods. So proud of that. That's a great thing. That's great. Yeah. Are you superstitious at all? Not so much. Why? Uh, something coming up? No, because... <laughs> <laughs> no, because you said, because I didn't care about the money, I always made money. So I wondered if... And I know how you meant it. You meant that like you... It was because you were betting on the chefs. But I just wondered if a little bit there's a part of you that's like, because I don't care about this, it'll go better than if I cared a lot about it. Nope. Not, nothing to do with that. Okay. It, I, it was something I learned after the fact. Gotcha. Right? Um, oh, West Anthony. I think we already asked this one, but yeah. oh no, I guess not exactly. Did Phil Rosenthal encounter any food he would not have because it was gross? So in the filming of your TV show. Uh, what did I turn down? Did I turn down? Any? I didn't. They even put in this one place in Tokyo, They the, this place was so inventive and so wonderful. The food was so delicious. And he made this gorgeous salad and on the plate are two ants. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you, the, you being cute now? The, they, I don't want to eat that. I even say in one of the other episodes, I'm not eating bugs. I'm not interested in doing this. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, people ask me, what's the show like? I say, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And, but this meal was so delicious. And I trusted this guy that if I was to have an ant and the things you do because the camera's on you. Yeah. You, you, you know, but. He said, before I ate this, before I tried it even, try it. It tastes like lemon. Can't you just have lemon? That's what I said. <laughs> hey, but maybe in the back you have lemon. <laughs> right. We're resorting to ants now because of... <laughs> I tell my parents in the show who I Skype with every uh -huh. episode. I ate ants today. She goes, you could have gone to our kitchen. We have them here. <laughs> um, I, I, I tried this thing and there's, you know... You got to get over the fact that you're putting an ant in your mouth sure. and it's going to crunch a little. And uh, well, right, well. I see your face. And I made the same face. And I swear to God, I did it. And it tasted like somebody put a lemon drop on your tongue. It was crazy. I said, so what did you do? You made basted these in lemon or something? Mm -hmm. He goes, no, these particular ants, not every ant, these particular ants from this part of the world taste like lemon. Now, Imagine what they have to do to discover that. People eat bugs. I know. They, they, everyone says that crickets are going to save the world because it, they're so plentiful and they're so nutritious and they're not bad, they say. I haven't had one. Ugh. They're probably a little bit nutty, right? I feel like I've heard that about crickets. Why yeah, do you it's, eat that it when is, there's other things to eat? I agree. Although it is, when you really think about it, everything begins to lose meaning and I feel like my brain is liquefied and, and <laughs> I'm, it's going to drip out my ear. Because when you think about it, like, well, why, why do we decide that's gross but that's not gross? Exactly. And why... Do I feel like that's inhumane? But he, but I, you know, but I'm eating chicken. Why is that any better? And you know, I, I went to know. Milan just mm -hmm. recently. I, I got to speak at the World's Fair, that, which is all about food this year. Mm -hmm. It was great, and I went to this place, little gelato store. And the lady says, "We have the milk from the the other animal, not just the cow." I said, "Like what? Uh, goat? Okay, that makes sense." And then this one, she puts her fingers over her head, like wiggles them, like uh -huh. ears over her head. So I'm thinking, what else gives milk? A sheep, right? No, no sheep. Asine, uh, uh, asine. I'm like, what's that? And she, ah, she points to a picture of a donkey. <laughs> donkey milk. So now, ass I'm, milk. Now I'm in Borat. 
<laughs> right? I make you ice cream from donkey. <laughs> it's a uh, ass cream. Yeah. They should call it that. That's did the, you try that's it? A, I did. How, did it taste? If, how did it taste? If I didn't know I was eating donkey milk ice cream, I would have said this is delicious. Hmm. But I couldn't get that idea out of yeah. my head. Yeah. Of ass cream. <laughs> it's in my head now. Yeah, sorry. Amber Lewis says, favorite candy? Chocolate. Anything chocolate. Doesn't okay. matter. Twix I just came to mind. All right. Mark Anything Vince. peanut butter chocolate. Oh, okay. That's. Are you with me? I'm with you. I'm with you. Mark Vincent says, this is a good one. Would you would you rather eat pizza whenever you well actually I'll just read it as he says. Yes. Rather eat pizza whenever he wants, but has to <laughs> scream at people to get it. So, rather eat pizza whenever he wants, but has to scream at people to get it, or continue being a mensch but only get one pie a year. Wow. I know. It's philosophical so and deep. I think at different times in my life, I might have answered that differently, but I'm in a place now where I don't want to yell anymore, right? And there's other things I can eat. He mm -hmm. didn't say I couldn't eat anything else, right? That's true. I can eat, you know, it's a lot like pizza's calzone. <laughs> like you found a loophole. <laughs> okay. Uh, two more, and then we'll do just me or everyone. Um, Here's a real uh, real industry-ish type question. Michael Michelangelo says, what's the best way to get your TV pilot script into the hands of TV networks without an agent? I'm surprised Michelangelo needs to ask me this question. <laughs> He's been successful. Uh, there is no good way, yeah, unfortunately. There isn't, right? there, you have to have an agent submit it. They're actually not allowed to take unsolicited right. submissions. Right. You're not even allowed to give it to me to give to them because of the Writers Guild protection. It's not just protection for you so that I don't steal your idea, mm -hmm. but if I accept it and then nobody takes it and then somebody does something like it, you could accuse me of stealing your idea. So right. it protects me and you. The only way is to keep hammering at agents' doors and get them to read it. That's it. Okay. Uh, and then speaking of the written word, Liam says, favorite book, question mark. I have a lot of favorite books. It's like, no, it's a hard question. Asking favorite movie. I, I'll tell you the recent ones that I loved. I loved Norman Lear's memoir. That's fantastic. I recommend that. I, uh, was lucky enough to be involved in a conversation with him. It's fascinating. The best. Wait, what's, I, he came to Milan with me. Oh, 90, he did? 93 years old. Wow. He came. He was on the panel with me. And, you know, we're buddies. We we go eat lunch. It's one of the great relationships of, of my life. He, I, I call him the youngest guy I know. <laughs> what's, the name, it's like, what's the name of his book? This I Get to... Even This? Even This I Get to Experience. Yes. yes. Yeah, I love that whole... His whole yes. outlook and his whole... He wants that on his tombstone. That's I where love that, that comes from. Yeah. I love that. What's going to be on yours? Uh, always quit. <laughs> okay, let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, Scooby Snacks says, when eating something crunchy, sometimes I don't chew enough, and when I swallow, I feel like I'm tearing a hole in my throat, just me or everyone. I've definitely had this experience. If you swallow at the wrong time, it feels like like something jagged is happening. I've almost choked to death, and I hope this is not prophetic, and that this isn't played when I die, 
as, from doing this, as do which I. is you take a, you, you're eating steak and you're really hungry mm -hmm. and it takes too long to chew it. And so you just go, I'm just going to swallow it. Yes. And then it blocks your trachea and then you need the Heimlich maneuver. Did you actually get the Heimlich maneuver? No, but you feel like you do and you right. start coughing and hopefully it goes one way or the other. But this has happened more times in my life to the point where I think maybe I'm not so smart. <laughs> the I remember, so when I, I lived in New York for years and I lived uh, with my sister for a while and then I moved into a place on my own in Brooklyn and I loved living alone. I was like, I, sh I always want to live alone until I was eating something. I'm kind of a sucker for like weird pickled things in jars, which makes it sound like I'm talking about disgusting things. I'm not, I just mean like different pickled vegetables and things like that. And it was some kind of pickled eggplant or something. And yeah. I took a bite of it and it was so sour that I just instantly started coughing and I don't know if it went down the wrong pipe or I don't know. I know I was choking and I couldn't catch my breath. And I was looking around my apartment to think like, how can I give myself a, a Heimlich by myself? I'll just like hurl myself over a chair. I'm going to die alone. No one's going to I had the whole, the, I, you were literally I had, choking. I was choking yeah. and I didn't know how to get anyone's attention. And, I was sure I was going to die alone. And I was like, this is why you shouldn't live alone and eat pickled eggplant. But it turns out I was fine. Okay, <laughs> moving on. I like a story with a happy ending. Yeah. It kind of skidded to a I stop. had something that was so disgusting and it's in the show and it's a century year old egg. Oh, I've in heard Hong of that. Kong. What does that taste like? I'm going to tell you. First of all, you look at this egg, it's, it comes to the table served as half hard boiled eggs mm -hmm. like you might see in a deli except these half hard boiled eggs the yolk is green and the white of the egg is brownish orange almost translucent Ugh. yes so there were a couple people at the table one guy said uh, i'm used to this i grew up with this somebody else said uh delicacy, I ate it once in right? a while yeah and one girl said uh, i'm not touching that <laughs> i said come on we're both gonna taste it and she took a tiny sliver of it and i said come on and i took the egg the whole half an egg and popped it in my mouth because I'm so hilarious. Right, because the cameras were on. I just you lose your your inhibition. Yeah, sure. you just think, go for it. I'm telling you, and the camera captures you. You hear my brother laughing because it's the funniest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> he does. Have this is the payback. Yeah. <laughs> this is the payback. The first thing you taste is very, very rotten egg. Oh, this is quickly supplanted, though, <laughs> by the overpowering tsunami of ammonia. Oh, God. Yes, I thought I would die. I thought I would die. And what I learned later was you're supposed to take a little sliver as you would an onion and oh. add a bit of it to your thing. It's like a garnish. It's a hideous garnish, but <laughs> it's something that they would like. You know, that for their palate. Right. But I went like, I I mean, it was, but I swallowed it. I did not spit it out. And you didn't throw I up? Just, I did not. That's the bravest thing I've ever done. Wow. Yes. You're a true. A true hero, I think. Hero. Yeah. Um, so it really just is a rotten egg. It is preserved in ash and lime for weeks to mm -hmm. months. It's not a century old. It just tastes a century old. <laughs> I feel like I could experience. There are it. worse things in that the world? I haven't. Yes, in the world, some have 
embryos in them. Balut. Yeah. That I find as a fan of ducklings. Yep. I find that offensive, ex- especially yeah. disgusting. disgusting. So that's like just a fetal egg, right? Yeah. That they eat, but it's in there. And you can, t- okay, you can I've read tell about it's it. a little tiny body. I don't know what compels me to do this. This is a just me or everyone. I think everyone does this, where you Google stuff that you know you're going to find upsetting. Yes. Um, no, when you when you bite down, you can taste a little bit of the crunch of like the beak and the feathers, evidently. No, thank you. But it's gelatinous. It's a gelatinous fetal Yeah. So duck. if you're asking me if there's something I won't eat, yeah, I'm not having that. I'm not having the putrefied, putrefied shark. That's popular in Iceland. I don't know that, about this. Well, Bourdain has done this. And, and it's all to get at that drink that comes right after. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, can't we just have the drink? Right. Just have the drink. Yeah. Tobias Brick says, afraid to touch stove burners even when I know they are off. Just mirror everyone. Um, We have a gas. No, I guess they could be off and they could still be hot, though. I guess I don't have this. Maybe I should. It never occurs to me to touch one. How about That's that? That's even better. Demian Cordova says, if my seatbelt isn't adjusted perfectly, I can't drive. I don't know that I can't drive, but I definitely fiddle with my seatbelt a lot while I'm driving. What is with your sick listenership? Well, that's this segment. As I always say, <laughs> question it too much and we lose the whole segment. <laughs> this they, they find their things yes. and then they send them in. Everybody has something that they're a little anal about, right? That they, little, that's right. they need that their they thing. Wonder, so I'm not going to judge everyone? this person Okay, because so we all have, have a thing. That's right. Some people have a lot of things, and, and, I, they write and in we every relate week. to other people's specific things. That's the that's the goal. The way the segment came about was <clears throat> when I was in Brooklyn, I was walking around my apartment, and a fire truck went screaming down the street, and I thought, it's instant thought, uh oh, I hope it's not headed to my apartment. I hope I didn't leave my straightening iron plugged in. I hope there's not a fire in my apartment. And I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, something in my throat, perhaps um, Heimlich, a fetal duck. I realized every time I'm anywhere like remotely near my apartment and I see a fire truck go by, I have that thought. Like every time I have that thought. Because you had it once. No, it's never happened. I've never been involved in a fire. I'm just always. I mean, you had that. Do you go back to the first time you had the original thought that I my curling iron? And so that's why you go back to it because it was in there? No, I don't even know when the first time I had the thought was. Like I have it. So it's just kind of. So it's new every time. I've Yes. I've always, I always worry that perhaps they're headed to my apartment. Yes. And so then I thought, is that just me or is that everyone? Hence the segment. Got it. That was the birth of the segment. Nice. I'm sure it's a lot of people. I think so. Just me, Ashley. Oh, see, and she's even named herself after the segment. Says, (laughs) just me or everyone. Feel that people ask me things they should be asking Google. Yes, that does happen, especially on Twitter. It happens a lot. People will be like, when is this or what is that or, you know, and I, I see comedians get very frustrated with people asking, when are you coming to this town? And they're like, all my tour dates are on my website. What is the address for that restaurant? Right. That's a real Google thing. You get that email. Yeah. What Can you tell me the address? I guess I could. <laughs> I'm going to now go to Google, look right. it up and then email you back. Right. The exact address of that restaurant. I know. It's interesting. I think nowadays you don't really need to, when you're giving someone, when you're telling someone where to go, you probably don't really even need to give an address. And yet I still do. Sort of like if I'm leaving someone a, a voicemail, I'm tempted to say what time and day I'm calling. Don't, and I think don't, they don't need it. Don't, doesn't everybody's car now have the ability you type in 
Moza, yes. and it goes to Moza, it goes to the restaurant. You don't need the, leave me alone, people. <laughs> Mallory Anderson says, when walking down a long hallway alone in my office building, I sometimes get the urge to sprint. Um, Why not? This is, sure. young, this is a young person question. <laughs> I get the urge to lie down. Oh my God, look how long this hallway is. <laughs> okay. Oh, B. Slammon also says, calling customer support helplines is my personal hell. I avoid it at all costs. It's turned me into quite the DIY girl. Yeah, customer support helplines. Sometimes they actually help you, but the idea of doing it is very, uh, that makes me tired. That will make me want to take a nap instead of ever call a customer support line. Sometimes I think they don't really want to help you. I think you're right. I'm waiting an awfully long time. Yes. I think they want me to go away. And and when they have that repeated announcement, your call is very important. This is happens when you call the airlines. Yes. They'll be hold music. Right. And then the music will stop for a second and you'll be like, oh, I'm up. Your call is very important oh. to us. Yeah. And you think, my call is not very important. It's not. Bastards. And lastly, Amy Smith says, if I put on a sweater straight out of the dryer, I'm afraid a pair of underwear will be stuck to it and fall off once I'm in public. <laughs> yes. Yes. Static, static cling. I'm, I'm often worried about that too. My enemy, the static cling. That's right. I love it. That's a good fear. It's a healthy fear. You know what you could do? Hmm. Run your hand through there and see if there's underwear in there. <laughs> that is how you handle it. Thank you. I'm your Mr. Fix-It. Phil Rosenthal, thank you so much for being on my show. I love being in your dining room. When do we eat? <laughs> we should try to eat sometime. Well, we actually, we when we do snack chat, we'll occasionally taste weird things or weird chip flavors on this show. But I, I wonder what it would be like. Something. No, you're too kind. <laughs> you guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. There's PayPal links on the right side of the website. You need a t-shirt and we have some now. Go to my website. You'll see a picture of a t-shirt and it'll say, you need a shirt. Click on that and you can get one. Uh, we have ringtones, singles, special episodes. We have all sorts of stuff available. You're like Disneyland. This is one of them. We also have a, a, our signature ringtone. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. You can get all of this at gumroad.com, G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com slash Allison. Again, that's gumroad.com slash Allison. The Hey Go Fuck Yourself ringtone you can also get on iTunes. Uh, we also have two special bonus episodes uh, available. Those were recorded live at the podcast festival a while ago. But hey, maybe they're new to you. And those are available in the comedy album section of the iTunes store. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Jeff, where can we go for you? You can find me at Colonel Jeff Fox on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can check out my show, Barracuda Radio. New episode with uh, the director of the Corla Pandit documentary. Excellent. So, Phil Rosenthal. I'm on tell, Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on tell, the Facebook. Tell people where they can find you and uh, plug everything that you would like people to check out. I did already. It's the show, right? It's the book, yeah. if you like that. You're Lucky You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom. And I'm on uh, the Twitter, Phil Rosenthal on Twitter, Phil.Rosenthal on Instagram, Phil Rosenthal Facebook. What else you want? 
I feel like I feel like that's all. That's it. Thank you so much. I this loved was it. this was really fun. Listeners, thank you. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go.